Welcome to God's Word Community Church Sermon Broadcast. The books of Thessalonians, written by the Apostle Paul, are so special because they show us what a truly good church looks like. We hope you enjoy the kind of meaty, spiritual food from God's Word that we offer here at GWCC. We are trying at GWCC to skip almost 2,000 years of church history. We're trying to jump all the way back to the beginning where Jesus expressed what he wanted his church to be and the apostles like Paul and Peter both laid down what they, learning from Jesus, also wanted the church to be. There have been a tremendous number of things that have happened in the history of the church of the last 2,000 years, and many of them have very much confused the purpose and the direction of the church and how people look at their own faith and their own walk with God. One of the things that we do here is we try to help all of our people grow in the Word. So one of the things that you can count on is that our sermons on Sunday morning are going to be designed to help you learn Scripture and understand the importance of it, Scripture that you didn't know before. On Wednesday nights, one of the things that's distinctive about God's Word CC is that I'm trying to teach those who come how to do discipleship, which is the last command that Jesus gave before he went to heaven. How do you actually share your faith with someone and teach them to the point where they could then teach someone else? That's what Jesus asked us to do. Instead, over 2,000 years of church history, most of us have just been turned into spectators. We live in a world now where 98% of all Christians will live and die without ever bringing anyone else to believe in Jesus Christ. 98% of Christians have been disempowered from the basic command that Jesus gave to his people. We also have become confused about what our roles are. At different places, we learned that this person is a priest, and I'm not. This person is a pastor, and I'm not. And so we lose the reality of the New Testament that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, you are a priest. You are a minister of the New Covenant. You are a minister of the Kingdom of God. And these are not things that we're making up. In fact, it was the Apostle Peter himself who said, but you, all of you, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? That you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. The priesthood of all believers is just one of many things that has gotten lost about the true identity of the church over the last 2,000 years. And so this is why we go back to the Word. We don't believe that any human being on this planet, we don't believe that any fallen man or woman can take the place of God's own divine word which he spoke to us. And so on Sunday mornings, we are learning from the New Testament letters how we can be a New Testament church. This is called expository preaching where the text itself sets the direction for the message. Expository just means that we're trying to expose the text. We're just trying to expose what the text says. We've now studied the Apostle Paul's first two letters, and by that I mean in time 
what order did he write these letters in the New Testament? The first letter that he wrote was a very angry letter to the church of the Galatians. He was very angry with the Galatians. In fact, it is the only one of his letters where he doesn't thank God about them for anything. And he writes this angry letter because they have lost their freedom in Christ. They don't even know what Christian liberty is anymore. And they have fallen back into man-made religion instead of sticking with the Word of God and the freedom of the Gospel. So we got to learn what one of the bad kind of churches are. One of the bad kind of churches that people sometimes become is a church that can no longer tell the difference between man-made rules and God-made rules. And so because of that, they end up falling back into religious traditions and things that Jesus says are vain, meaningless. If Jesus says that, we can take his word for it, right? The next letter that Paul wrote is his first letter to the church of the Thessalonians. Now, to me, this letter has been a breath of fresh air because I've seen a lot of weak and sick churches in my lifetime. And sometimes you can get discouraged and wonder, does a good church even exist? Is it possible for a good church to exist? And one of the nice things about reading the letters two letters to the Thessalonian Christians is that this is a wonderful church. This is a church that we would have liked to have been a part of, and this is a church that we would like to become. This is a church that got famous for its faith in Jesus Christ. How was that faith lifted up? Well, mainly because of how they stayed true and kind and holy, dedicated while they were being persecuted. Their faith was clear because of how true they stayed even in the midst of some terrible times they also were known as a loving church my experience is that a lot of churches talk about love but then the reality of it kind of falls out along the side this was a church where the people truly did love each other and their love was growing and growing and growing a couple of other things that we saw in 1 Thessalonians is we saw that these people were very faithful in their practice of discipleship, which means taking from a teacher how they live out their life with Christ, and then you take what you've learned and shared it with someone else so they can live out their life with Christ. And that's what the Thessalonians had done. Paul, Silas, and Timothy had come and lived among them. They watched how Paul and Silas and Timothy lived out their Christian life. They learned how to be Christians like them. They walked that way, lived that way, and then they made new friends, new connections in the area of Greece, and they helped spread that on. That was one of the best things that the Thessalonians did. Another thing that I thought was very cool, I had never, ever noticed before I prepared the message for our church that 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 was really a chapter about church leadership. I'd never, in all of my studies about leadership, I had never had a teacher point me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as a great way to learn what the attitudes and behaviors and words of a good church leader would be like. And so 1 Thessalonians 2 was a wonderful encouragement and instruction to me. And now, if whenever I get a chance to teach about church leadership anywhere, I'm going to be lifting up 1 Thessalonians 2 as one of the places people could go. Now, you're never in a million years going to guess what letter Paul wrote after 1 Thessalonians. Right, close, close, close. He actually wrote, yes, hold your breath, 2 Thessalonians after 1 Thessalonians. 
Now, obviously, these two letters don't have to be close together in time, but in this case, they are. Uh, 2 Thessalonians was only written a few months, apparently, after 1 Thessalonians. Paul started the third church in Thessalonica, the third church, you see, I'm ting-twisting here. He started the church in Thessalonica right during his second, what we call the second missionary journey, and you can read about the starting of that church in the beginning of Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, the first eight, nine verses, he's going through an area of Europe that you and I would usually think of as northern Greece. He isn't all the way down to Athens yet. He's quite a bit above that. He started the Thessalonian church. It was cool because there were two really good churches that started very close together, the Thessalonian church and the Berean church, the church at Berea. We don't have a letter to the Bereans, unfortunately, but both of those churches were excellent, excellent churches. We find out that Paul started the Thessalonian church in about 50 A.D., We have an idea very closely, very accurately when he started this church because we know there was a riot when Paul was up there and the riot was settled by a Roman. The name of his office was a proconsul. There was a Roman proconsul named Gallio. And we know that Gallio only ruled for about two years. And so it gives us a very narrow window about when Paul could have been here and when he could have written these letters. So Paul escapes from Thessalonica. You can always tell when a guy is a good preacher because lots of people come after him and try to kill him. And so Paul then headed south from Thessalonica all the way to Athens. And when he gets to Athens, he finds out that the dear brothers and sisters that he loves so much in Thessalonica are coming under some terrible persecution. And so he writes 1 Thessalonians to express his love to them, to let them know how worried he has been for them, and to encourage them to stay faithful and true. I think it's very important that in that 1 Thessalonian letter, in chapter 5, he gives us a description about what a day-by-day good Christian life should look like, how we should act, being thankful in all circumstances, rejoice in the Lord, Stay constantly in prayer. Be nice to others. Talk nice to others. All those sorts of things. Very, very deep description of what it means to be a Christian in not very many verses. It's amazing how much information we get there. Another part of that letter, and I'm giving this long introduction because 2 Thessalonians really picks up on this piece here. One thing that's very weird for us, you and I were born into the church at a time when we know that Jesus is coming back. We don't know when he's coming back, but we know he's coming back. We also know that if somebody dies, we don't expect that they've been lost because they didn't last until Jesus made it back. We assume that if they died in the Lord, as Paul will write later, they are now with the Lord. And the day will come when Jesus will come and take with him all those who are still alive. Well, these letters are so early. These letters are so early in the life of the church that these people in the early church did not know these things that you and I consider very basic. The Thessalonians thought that Jesus was going to come back in their own lifetime. They're expecting to see him rip open the clouds practically before their kids get married. So then what happens when mama dies? 
when my mama dies and Jesus hasn't made it back yet, then suddenly I've got this terrible question, well, what about my mom? It's hard for you and me to even imagine that Christians would have a worry like that. I mean, of course, we grieve when we lose these people that we love so much. But if they were in Christ, we feel very confident that they're with the Lord. These people didn't know that yet. And so, beginning in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 through about 5.11, we read that amazing piece about how when people die in Jesus Christ, when Jesus comes back, they will actually be the ones who meet Jesus first in the air. And then we'll get to put our own rocket boots on and get up there and meet Jesus up there in the air as well. Well, this starts a very important conversation with these people because in 2 Thessalonians, we basically speak, spend this whole letter looking toward eternity. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible to 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to always encourage you to do that. I believe you'll have a much better time uh, in the Scriptures if you read along with us. If you don't have a Bible, we have a couple here, so you don't get any excuse whatsoever. If you need a Bible, we've got them. Ma'am, could you use a Bible? You look like you could use a Bible. Is there anybody else back there who could use a Bible? Now, in the middle, in the middle of the New Testament, in the middle of the New Testament, go all the way to the back, maybe fifth of your Bible. That's where your New Testament is. And in the middle of your New Testament, you're going to find five books in a row that start with the letter T. All the T books occur together. First and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, Titus. So when you find those five books, what we want to do is we want to go to Second Thessalonians and we're going to pick up chapter one, verse one. Now it's a good thing that uh, this is a short chapter because we got started late today. So um, but I still think that what we're looking at here is going to be interesting to you. I want you to notice that when, back in these days, people write a letter, instead of saying, sincerely yours, the Apostle Paul, instead of putting that at the end of the letter, in these days, the author would put the greeting up in the front. So instead of having sincerely yours at the end, we have the sincerely yours at the beginning. And so, as Paul always does, in the first verse, he tells who the writers are. And he says, Paul, Silas. Some of you have the word Sylvanus. Sylvanus, I think, is a very interesting name because it means the guy that comes from the woods. Yeah. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Now, we know who Paul is. Paul was that mean-spirited Pharisee that tried to kill the church But God saw something even in that mean Pharisee, knocked Paul right off his mule and said, you're working for me now. And Paul was indeed converted by the presence of Jesus Christ. And despite the fact that he is a hardcore Pharisee Jew, he becomes the most important apostle to all the non-Jews in the whole world. So when I look out at our audience We, most of us here, are not Jews, which means that he is our apostle. We know Jesus Christ really because of this man. Now, Silas is a neat character who traveled around with Paul after Barnabas quit traveling around with Paul. 
Silas is one of the prophets from the church in Antioch of Syria. Now, if you imagine the Mediterranean Sea like a big rectangle, in the bottom right-hand corner, you're going to find Jerusalem. If you go up that coast to the upper right-hand corner, that's real close to where Antioch of Syria is. And that's a very important church because they started missionary work on a big scale. They also are a church that you and I can really look back at because they were a very strongly non-Jewish church. They were one of the first churches where there were more non-Jews in it than Jews. Jews started the church, but then the church became more non-Jewish. And one of the important tidbits about this church is that it is the first place we were ever called Christians. You find that out in Acts eleven twenty-six. They were first called Christians in Antioch. Why? Because before then the church was all Jewish. And back in those days, the Romans and everybody else just considered Christianity to be some subsect of the Jews. Once it breaks out into the Gentiles, like us, they have to recognize that it's a whole new thing. And so we're first called Christians by this wonderful church. So Silas was one of the prophets who was from that church, but then he began to travel with Paul and help start churches and convert people all over the place. Timothy is a very, very important young man. Timothy is one of the people in the New Testament that are referred to as an evangelist. Now, in the United States, we have turned the word evangelist into the idea of a preacher who goes from town to town to town to town doing revivals and gospel sermons and stuff like that. That's really not what the word evangelist meant way back here in these days. In these days, the evangelists were the second generation leaders of the church because the apostles are not going to live forever, are they? The apostles are eventually going to get old and die. So who's going to take over the leadership ministry of the apostles? In Acts chapter 6, the apostles call that ministry the ministry of the Word of God. You can see why we're so strong about that here at GWCC. The ministry of the Word of God and of prayer. That ministry, the apostles wanted to make sure, kept on track. Why? Because our personal relationship with God is everything. It's everything. We could do everything else that churches do. And if we don't have our personal relationship with God, we lose it all anyway. You know? Relationship with God means we know how to talk to God. That's prayer. We know how to listen to God. That's the Bible. We know how to obey Him because Jesus is Lord. That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. A Christian is a person who says, Jesus is Lord. So after the apostles die... We need a new set of leaders in the church who can take the baton from the apostles and serve in that role of leadership. And Timothy is one of those. That's what an evangelist is in the New Testament sense. Now, Timothy is an interesting young man because his dad was Greek. His mom was a Jew. He's from a mixed-race family and a mixed-religion family. Paul finds Timothy in the city of Philippi in Acts chapter 16. And when he finds out that Timothy's mother and grandmother have helped Timothy become a very strong believer in God, Paul says, that's the young man I want to train how to do mission with me. And so Paul begins taking Timothy with him. Timothy will actually have two of the letters of the New Testament written to him, including the very last letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. 
So Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. Notice this preposition, friends. In God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought of a church being in the Father? In the Son? It's interesting when you read about baptism in the New Testament, it talks about us going from being outside of Jesus Christ, being baptized into Jesus Christ, so we are in Christ. That's the language that the New Testament uses, that we go from being outside to being in. I think it's kind of cool that Jesus Christ is in us and we are in Jesus Christ. There's a mutual sort of indwelling. That happens in our relationship with him. And then Paul says howdy, his favorite way of saying howdy in verse 2. Grace and peace, y'all, from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what I want you to understand about grace and peace, to say those words, is that there are really two different reasons he says it. One is because he has a mixed congregation. He has a congregation with both Jews and Greeks in it, Jews and Gentiles. Grace is the way back in those days non-Jews said howdy. If we were on the streets and passed each other in the days of the Roman Empire, we would say kyra, which is very close to the Christian word charis, which means grace. Kyra is very much like have a nice day, but it's very close to the word for grace. So when Paul says grace, it's the way non-Jews say howdy. Jews, of course, say howdy by saying shalom, don't they? And so the peace greeting is a greeting to all the Jews in the congregation. What is peace? Peace is when you are okay inside your own soul. It's when things are okay between you and other people. And it's when things are well and whole between you and God. Sometimes we treat the word peace as if that's what you have when the shooting stops. That's not what peace means in the Bible. In the Bible, peace isn't just about what has stopped happening. Peace is also about the positive things that exist. The wholeness and wellness within your own soul. The wholeness and wellness between you and those around you. And the wholeness and wellness between you and God. That's peace. We need those things from God, don't we? Grace and peace. In fact, it's only as we chase God and get closer to Him and listen to Him and obey Him more and more and more that we begin to experience that grace and peace more in our own lives. Now, we start with the main part of the letter in verse 3. And I want you to see how one of the very first things Paul does is he tells the people how precious they are using words that sound very much like the last letter. He says, we ought... It's a fun word, isn't it? Ought. You know, in English, the word ought keeps bad company, doesn't it? We always say, I ought to have done that. What's the next word I say? But. You ever said that? I ought to have done that. Hear how the word but just comes? But. I did this instead. We could translate this, and I want you to let this soak in for a moment. Paul says here, We are under obligation. We ought always to thank God for you. When I read that, I wondered as soon as I read it, who ought I always to be giving thanks to God for? 
Who are the people that I ought to be always giving thanks for? I think sometimes we really miss out on this side of the spiritual life, of recognizing the power and blessing that our brothers and sisters are to us and giving thanks to God for the faith and the love that they bring to our lives. Paul is saying that here. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers. I bet he's really feeling it because at the time he's writing this, I think he's down in Corinth. When you read the book of Acts from 17 to 18, it sounds like he's moved on down from Athens to Corinth, and Corinth is a very troubled church, as Jonathan has indicated already this morning. That is a very torn-up church, lots of divisions, lots of class wars between the uh, poor people and the rich people. Um, They are religiously out of control because of the cults in the city. They are sexually out of control. They are a church with a lot of very serious problems. Even the spiritual gifts that they have in Corinth, they used to compete with one another with. Well, I can be more merciful than you administrate. What? You know, hardly makes even any sense when you hear it. And so Paul down in Corinth is remembering what his Thessalonian brothers or sisters are like. Thank God you're there. You know, I'm so, I so appreciate how you are. If you could see these dot, never mind. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so. Now, I want you to notice what he says here. He doesn't say, because you've got such big faith. That's not what he says. He says, because your faith is growing. Your faith is growing more and more. You know what I wish I could, if I could pray a prayer for every person who calls themselves a Christian in the United States and have it answered, I would pray that they would all be dissatisfied with where they're at. That they would be hungry to be growing more and more and more in faith and love. I tell you, I would rather have a brand new baby Christian that's only been in Christian six months, but they're hungry. I would rather have that person to work with than somebody who's been in the church for 20 years, hasn't grown for the last 10 years, and doesn't know why they should. I would much rather be with the hungry soul. I'm reminded of uh, General Patton. I love General Patton's old speech when he tells the soldiers, I don't want to hear that we're going to hold our position. We're not holding anything. We're advancing constantly. That's the way he spoke. We're pressing forward. In the last letter, Paul congratulated them on their love and then said, but love each other more and more and more. In this letter, He gives thanks because they have strong faith that is growing and growing and growing. We should never be satisfied. We should never be asking questions like, how much of that do I need? Has our church come far enough? There really is no such thing as far enough, is there? Jesus Christ is our standard. We can't ever reach Him because He's perfect. But that also means that He's where we can aim forever. We can always aim to be more like Him than we were. And He's always there shining in front of us like a light and loving us and drawing us forward. Make our faith like His. Make our love like His. Growing more and more. And the love of every one of you has for each other is increasing. You see, what Paul is excited about is the fact that they're growing and he can tell they're growing. 
we should be able to look at each other and see that we are not growing only in numbers, but that our depth, our commitment, our faith, our love is growing. This would be a huge change in churches all over the United States. I can't tell you how many times I've seen churches where as soon as um, a person accepts the gospel and is baptized, they then sit in the pew where they mold for the next 20 years, you know, with, with hardly ever realizing the hunger and the dream that they had. Why are you coming to Jesus Christ? Nobody comes to Jesus Christ hoping that 20 years from now they'll still be doing nothing. That's one of the reasons in GWCC we have such a burden for this, such a vision for this. We really want to challenge believers in our region to a revival of spirit, a revival of the Word of God, a revival of commitment to the Lordship of Christ. We want to see if we can tickle and encourage that sense of hunger inside of them. Do you really want to be in a church three years, five years, ten years, and not know the Bible any more than you did ten years ago? You still don't know how to share your faith? You still can't move forward in the issues of purity in your life? That's what we call spiritual immaturity. Nobody comes to the Lord wanting to be spiritually immature forever. And so Paul is telling these people, I'm excited because your faith and love are growing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about you. (laughs) God loves to brag about the Thessalonians, about your perseverance, your perseverance. In the Bible, there are, in the New Testament, there are two words for patience in the New Testament. One was translated by the Old King James Version as long-suffering. It's the ability to take a lot of punishment and not give up and not quit. You know, the old Timex clock commercials, it can take a licking and keep on ticking. That's long-suffering. But the other word is a word that some of my friends know very well now, is the word hupomone. Hupomone, perseverance. My favorite illustration of Hupomone is the idea of a soldier who is already tired standing on a hill and defending it with his sword in one hand and his shield in the next and his arms already feel like lead. And then when the barbarians come and attack the hill again, he pushes them back, fights them off, draws close to the shields of his brothers and they fight the barbarians back until they hold the hill again and the barbarians have stopped for the moment and then he breathes his air and tries to stretch out the soreness and he's ready there to take on the next fight again when it comes that's what this word is this is a thing that never says die never says quit never says i'm giving up don't tell me the odds because I'm committed to this live or die. That's hupomone. And he congratulates the Thessalonians because he can see it in them. We brag about your hupomone. We brag about your perseverance. Or some of your Bibles may have endurance. That's another word. I brag about your perseverance and your endurance and your faith. Look how he can see the faith. In all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Isn't that a funny thing that as much as none of us want to go through 
terrible persecution or trials. It is funny how those very trials and persecutions show the Thessalonian faith for what it is. Their faith is made clear because of the way they stand true and firm and keep loving each other and pressing forward the gospel of Jesus Christ even though they're being persecuted. Faith is built on the Word of God. Faith is when we hold on to that which is invisible, the Word that God has called us to, even though when we look with our eyes, we don't see any way it can happen. We don't see any way we can win. We don't see any way what we're hoping for can come true. But we lean on God's Word. Now, this is not faith in faith. I'm not saying here that if I just believe something hard enough, it'll come true. That's not what I'm saying. It doesn't come from me. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. We learn that God is capable of providing what He promises. God is capable of bringing to pass what He has told us He will bring. And so, the writer of the book of Hebrews calls it the substance of things that are hoped for. That's not wishful thinking. That's the hope on the Word of God. The substance of things hoped for and the confidence or the foundation of that which is unseen. That's what makes faith so challenging, is that you're depending on something you cannot see, the reality of the Word of God. All of this, now, beginning in verse 5, Paul takes this in a very interesting direction that I don't think you or I would ever expect. He says, all of this, all of this what? All of this, the fact that you are enduring and growing in faith and love while you are being persecuted. All of that whole picture of stuff is evidence that God's judgment is right. What judgment? And as a result, you will be, okay, future tense, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Wow. Wow. I have to admit, this stretches me because Paul goes in a direction here that I don't expect him to go. This perseverance, this faith, this endurance that you're showing in all these persecutions is going to be the proof that when God judges you worthy of His kingdom, that that judgment was right. (laughs) Can look back at your commitment. Look how you lived, how you didn't give up, how you didn't quit. You know what Satan's whole game with you is, right? Satan's whole game against you is a con. Have you figured that out yet? That's all Satan's got. Because if you stay with Christ, you cannot lose. The battle is guaranteed. There's no doubt what's going to happen on the day of the Lord. So Satan has got to trick you into giving up on it either deciding you can't do it or God's not going to really help you or God's not powerful or maybe He just doesn't like you. Satan's got to convince you of those things to make you stop. That's his whole game. All he can do is run a con on you and try to get you to bite it. That's it. When we stand up in the face of that con, We go ahead and persevere and we hold on to Jesus Christ for dear life. We chase Him. We chase the One who loves our souls. 
it actually becomes part of the picture of final judgment. Sometimes you're going through things and you're wondering, does anybody know what I'm going through? Does anybody care? <laughs> Do you know that that's going to be one of the biggest things on the day of judgment? Is that God will be representing back to you that He saw where you were. He knows what you went through. And that His judgment on you is valid because you stayed faithful in the worst of times. But I want to point out to you, and I love this expression, I almost missed it. As a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. That's not going to go by without Him noticing. But what you find out here is that this judgment is a two-edged thing. God is just. He's telling us that you and I don't have to worry about getting even. We don't have to worry about making sure that those who are being evil to us get what's coming to them. You know what? Because God is holding the books on that. He says here, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief. Any of you ever feel like you need a rest? There's a rest coming for you. Not a rest. I mean, we may get arrested before this is all over. I'm trying to get ready for it mentally, brothers and sisters. I think the day is coming where I could end up arrested just for doing, you know, this stuff for Jesus Christ, right? But there is a rest <laughs> coming. The book of Hebrews chapter 4 talks about this as the unfulfilled Sabbath. The Sabbath that God promised, but it hasn't happened yet. And the day is coming when that Sabbath is going to arrive. And our spirits will finally rest. And on the one hand, judgment is going to be expressed against those who persecute His children. And His children are going to receive rest. He's going to give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. And then we get to see some special effects. Look where he goes. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. You know what the word revealed is? You'll like this. It's the word apocalypsis. Notice the word zombie is not in there. Apocalypsis. We're not talking about the zombie apocalypsis. Apocalypse is revelation, showing you something that you couldn't see before. That's what an apocalypse is. The reason we always think of it as zombies running over the whole world is because we know that when the day comes, the big day comes, the end of the world comes, it's going to come by revealing things that we had never seen before. This is the name, by the way, of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, in Greek, and by the way, please don't say Revelations. It's one Revelation. If you look at the name, you'll see there's no S on the word Revelation in the New Testament. It is the Revelation, singular, of Jesus Christ to the Apostle John. All right? I know, I, I would, you know, I would never have to take a paycheck again if I had a, a dollar for every time I heard some Christian, even an announcer on the radio, talk about, let's look that up in the book of Revelations. Oh, really? Is that after the book of Revelation? <laughs> Jesus is going to be revealed. 
He is going to be the revelation from God. He is going to be revealed with rainbows and lollipops and pastel-colored clouds, right? No, this is going to get kind of scary. This will happen when the Lord Jesus... You know, I can't, I can't tell you how the issue of Jesus being Lord is growing on me and growing on me and growing on me. You know the word I keep finding in the New Testament everywhere now? I just see it everywhere, every letter. The words of Jesus, the words of Paul, the words of Peter is the word obedience. 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 Why do we do this thing at GWCC? Because we call Jesus Lord. What does that mean? It means that when he speaks, I obey. He's my boss. I don't say, I don't feel like it. Or, I think I've got a way that will be more popular with the crowd. I think it'll make the crowd happier if I do such and such. You know what? That's not your job. That's above your pay grade. You are my slave. You are my servant. You will obey. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, Why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? I'm just starting to see obedience everywhere. And brothers and sisters, I mean, I can feel the tears in my eyes. That's, that's the heart of what I want to see us do at GWCC. I want us to pull out a cry to Christians in our region that they will quit just mouthing the name of Jesus. They will quit just using the word Lord as if it doesn't mean anything specific. And they will recognize that this relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ has to do with obeying him. I believe it's time we need to call Christ's church to repentance. We need to call his preachers and pastors to repentance. We need to lift the word of God back up and encourage people to actually read it and find out what God has told us to do. If Jesus tells us that as we go, we should disciple, then guess what? As we go, we should disciple. Churches don't disciple because it's slow. It starts small. It doesn't make a lot of money. And for the first year or two, you can't even tell anything's happening in that church. But if you make the investment of discipling, eventually what you get is a multiplication and an explosion. Who started the Church of Rome? Not Paul, not Peter. A bunch of Christians that were scattered in Acts chapter 8 while all the apostles were trapped in Jerusalem. The church at Rome was started by regular people like you. We need to let God's people know that. We need to call them out of immaturity we need to call them back to obedience to the lordship of jesus christ we need people are saying i just wish i knew what god's will for me was read the bible (laughs) he sent to you 66 books of will what part do you not get yet this will happen when the lord jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Have you ever heard of seraphim? You ever heard angels called seraphim? Of angels called seraphim? Angels called seraphim are revealed in Isaiah chapter 6. You can see them there. The word seraphim means the flaming ones, the burning ones. These are angels that when they fly and when they sing, they make stone buildings shake. When you read Isaiah 6, that's what you'll see. 
two wings they covered their face, with two wings they covered their feet, with two wings they flew, and they never stopped shouting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And at the sound of their singing, the doorposts and the thresholds of the temple shook. It's awesome. And Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with those angels. And He will punish whom? Check it. Two categories. Number one, those who do not know God. Those who do not know God. Please notice the word about is not in that sentence. It's not those who do not know about God. I know about the President of our United States, but I do not know Him. He does not know me. To know about someone is night and day difference from knowing Him. And I'm not just making up this use of the word know. Some of you have already heard that the word know in the Bible is intimate enough that sometimes it refers to sex. In, in the book of Genesis, we read simply that Adam knew Eve and she conceived a child. <laughs> That's knowing Eve. You follow? So when we're talking about knowing God, we're not talking about having some kind of long-distance relationship that I cash in once a month or like the old evangelism explosion people that I treat God like a spare tire. I pull him out when I need him, and then when I'm, when I'm done with needing him, I stick him back in the trunk. That's how many of us are. Oh, God, will you help me? I don't know if you'd let me out of the trunk. Jesus in John 17, chapter 17, verse 3 of the Gospel of John, John 17, 3, says, and I love this, Jesus says in His high priestly prayer, and this is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I want you to notice that that was written by the Apostle John. This was written by the Apostle Paul. This is the uniform message of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the eternal life is about knowing God, is about being in relationship with Him, being able to hear Him, being able to speak with Him, having communion with Him. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not what? What do you see? Who do not obey, do not obey, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. What we're reading here is not politically correct. I think you figured that out already, right? This is not a politically correct thing. Our world wants us to believe that choosing Jesus is like choosing any other box of cereal on the shelf, right? You could pick Muhammad. You could pick Buddha. You could listen to the Dalai Lama. Any of these will give you pretty much the same results because they all teach the same thing, right? Actually, no. All other religions are works righteousness-based religions. They tell you to perform certain things so that you can do well enough that God will let you in. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ says, Nah, you're not going to make it that way. You guys stink. I'm going to send my son. He is the Passover lamb. I'm going to cover you with his blood. And guess what? His righteousness is going to be yours. 
Now, they're all going to give you approximately the same thing, right? They all were resurrected after the grave, right? Mm, no. Muhammad's dead as a hammer. His bones are under a mosque in a city named Medina. Buddha is cold and dead. I would have loved to study with him. He was a neat guy. Not sure I would have cared to study with Muhammad, but I would have cared to study with Buddha. Muhammad, you read the beginning of the the Quran, he started his ministry when he fell off his animal and hit his head on a rock. The Quran says this. So the revelation of Islam came to a guy with a concussion. Now if you say that to somebody who's Arabic, they'll hit you. So don't say it. But it's a very funny religion when you think about it. Because Muhammad never did a miracle in front of anybody and he started his religion after he hit his head. <laughs> Buddha was a realist sweetheart of a guy. I would have loved to learn from him, but then he died. I might as well start a religion after my grandma. She's dead too. Jesus came out of the grave. If you want to know about life after death, there is one person in the history of human history, human mankind, that has the creds to talk to us about life after death. Only one. As I've said before, even the Dalai Lama. I like this Dalai Lama. I think he's a neat guy. But at some point, we have to recognize that he's Dalai Lama number 14. Why is he Dalai Lama number 14? Because 1 through 13 are all dead. <laughs> they all died. And this guy's getting older. I think he's going to die too. Jesus is alive. And that makes his gospel different than anything. They, those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will be punished. This is scary with eternal or everlasting destruction. You and I don't think of destruction as being everlasting. We think of everlasting as, well, that car is gone. That's how we think of destruction. In the Greek, this literally has the word ionios in it, where we get our word eternal. This is destruction that goes on and on and on. And not only is it infinite in length, it's infinite in size. Eternal in the Bible is not that just which goes on and on and on, but it is also divine in scale. Eternal life is not just life that goes on forever. It's life like the life that God has. It's big life. It's huge life. It's not like waiting forever in the Walmart checkout line before Christmas. Kill me now. This is everlasting destruction, destruction that, and, and look at the emphasis here in verse 9, and they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord. You know, no matter how evil somebody is these days, they still receive daily blessing from God. Jesus emphasizes this, that he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to shine for the just and the unjust. And every single reason that you and I have ever been given to smile, every good thing has come because God has provided it. Even if the most monstrous dictator would respond to the smile of their grandchild, that's the presence of God right there. The worst thing about hell is being cut off from God totally and forever. 
The best part of heaven is to be with him in his very presence forever. The best thing of heaven is being with him. The worst thing of hell is being cut off from him. Shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people, he will show up and he will be glorified among us and to be marveled at among those, all those who have believed. This includes you. Ewans, use guys, y'all. Why? Because you believed our testimony to you. Christianity is a religion that gives you the whole story on day one. Yes, there's, we can grow, we can mature, all that stuff, but there's no secret clauses. There's no hidden agenda. There's no mystical occult writing which, you, which is hidden from you until you become an elder or a deacon or whatever else. The whole thing is on the table right here, right in front of you. You believed our testimony. You believe Jesus Christ came from the dead. You know that he has been exalted to the highest place where every knee will bow under heaven and on earth and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You believe the testimony. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you. And I was telling Tennessee this morning that 2 Thessalonians 1.11 I think is going to become a favorite verse of mine and also a verse that I think is a GWCC important verse. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of His calling and certainly we long for that. And then look at this next piece and that by His power He may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. Isn't that cool? Everything that you might imagine you may want to do because of your love for God. Every way in which you may want to grow. Everything that you may want to see this little church accomplish. Every purpose, every desire, every resolution that we make. We're looking for it to be fulfilled by God. He is the only one that can bring those things to pass. I love that verse. That by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this, why? There's a why? I thought that was pretty good all by itself. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Look at all those nutty people from Glen Burnie trying to do something major for Jesus. The name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And you in him according to what? The grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Suddenly we realize that these dreams that we have, these ways in which we'd love to see Jesus lifted up and his word actually followed, we suddenly discover that this desire that we have on our hearts came from him. It actually came to us from his grace. It is His grace that we can dream this way. It is His grace that would allow the desires and dreams and resolutions that we have to be fulfilled by Him. It's all part of His grace. Now, next week when we get into chapter 2, we're going to get into even more water about the end of the world and the big day. 
But for now, what I feel like we need to hear is that we can't be satisfied with where we're at. We need to listen to His call to keep growing in faith and love. Keep growing in the Word and our commitment to Him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus says. And we need to hunger and thirst for that righteousness. We want to be better than we are. We want to be better servants to Him than we are. And at the same time, we know that even when we go through bad things, the special day is coming, and all that is going to be set right, and that God is here to bring to fulfillment every desire you have in your heart about how you would like to be more true to Him. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for retuning our eyesight. Thank you for getting us back into your word so that we can hear your promise and your intent. Father, you continue to forgive us. We need your forgiveness so bad. We need it so often. We need it so deeply. We thank you for your forgiveness and we receive it and we delight in you and we ask that you would help us to be effective in sharing it. Father, we want to lift up the name of your son, Jesus Christ. May it be so. It's in his name we pray. Amen.